All right. Well, today we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. If you want to open your Bibles and, uh, and turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. It's part 5 in our series, Strangers and Exiles, and uh, we are continuing through the, the book of 1 Peter, looking at, at what is it like to be a stranger in exile or someone who uh, lives in a world that's not their home. So far, we've started just by identifying who, who these called out ones are, the ones that God has called out uh, into a relationship with him by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and we've set up kind of the, the basics of, of this, this reminder to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ and because of Christ. And, and that because we have this, this uh, salvation through Jesus Christ, we should have a settled hope. We don't have to be anxious about that. Uh, the only time we're anxious is when we start to, to stray and go a different way. And we, we get anxious because there's temptations of the world that lure us that way. But we should have a settled hope. And then, and then we should understand that, that this is something that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And that, that changes everything about our relationship with God and our relationship to the world. We, we really truly become exiles and strangers in this world. Um, but now we're at a point in the, in the book where, where there's kind of a pivot going on. There's a, a, a corner that we turn. Um, and, and we pivot from knowing and understanding this hope that we have. We pivot into how now should we behave? How, how as strangers and exiles do we behave in a world that's not our home? And in a world that says we should behave a different way, what is our responsibility? How do we behave as strangers and exiles? So, and, and understanding that today as we look at this pivoting point, that pivoting point really is Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. So today we'll be in 1 Peter, again, chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll get to work in that passage. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we pause now to thank you for your great love for us and the mercy that you've given us and shown us through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've drawn us in as your people to faith in Christ, that we are now a people for your own possession. God, help us to live as strangers and exiles. And God, today as we look at your word and we look at how we're going to be pivoting on this cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, Jesus. Help us to be open and, and ready to receive what your word has to offer to us, that we would humble ourselves and, and we, would, we would deeply desire to be people that are your people. God, that we wouldn't want to look like the world, we want to look like Jesus to the world. So help us, help us understand how to do that better today as we, as we pivot, as we land, as we build our lives on the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And it's in his glorious name we pray. Amen. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. I'll read that in, in its entirety, and then we'll uh, get together and, and break that apart. It says this. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by the people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and the stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word, they were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once 
You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and they will glorify God on the day that he visits. All right, we're going to talk about that passage a little more. We'll, we'll break that apart. Uh, and today, again, uh, the sermon title is Christ the Cornerstone. And we're going to see what aspects of Christ the Cornerstone, what that means for you and I as strangers and exiles. And number one is this, that, that Christ the Cornerstone is where life is found. That's number one. It's where life is found. If you look at the passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, it says, as you come to him, a living stone. Now, this is kind of an oxymoron. A stone is dead and inanimate and just a hard object. When you look at Christ, he's a living stone. He's, he's something that's living and brings life to us as well our, and our hard hearts, our, our hearts of stone. He's a living stone rejected by the people but chosen and honored by God. And it says, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer your, your spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, see, I lay a stone, or a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. You see, there, there's life. When we come to Christ, we're not just building on some idea. We're not just building on some uh, words that were put out in, on paper to, to follow. We're building on Jesus Christ himself. And he is the living cornerstone. He's a living stone. And that through faith in Christ, the scripture says that we will not be put to shame. And that shame is our sin. And that shame of sin leads to death, but Christ has the victory over death. And, and as a living stone, he makes us, through faith in Christ, living stones as well. And he's talking about here the building of the church, how the church will be built. And you think about First Peter. Peter's writing this, right? Peter remembers back when Christ told him, Peter, on this rock, he's calling Peter the rock, on this rock I will build my church. So the living stone Jesus is talking to Peter and saying, you will be a part of this building, this structure of God's church. You're going to be a living stone as well. And so he passes that on. Peter says, to all of us who come to him in faith are living stones. There's life found in him. Christ, the living stone, the cornerstone. We see it in Acts chapter 4 when Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and giving an answer for why he's preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. He says this, rulers and peoples and elders, uh, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man and by which means he was healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. So there's this living stone again, right? He's not just dead and crucified. He's risen from the dead. By him, this man is standing here before you healthy. And then he goes on to say this. He says, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he goes on, he says, there is salvation in no one else. There's salvation, there's rescue, there's life in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. For us to have life, it's to be rescued from the, the wages and penalty of sin, which is death. And we do that through faith in Christ. And Christ is the living stone that we, we turn to, we run to. And we find life through faith in Christ. Uh, Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He talked about uh, when Christ died, he said he did this so that he might reconcile. That means fix and resolve and restore a relationship, right? 
reconciled both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. The hostility towards us, he put to death on Jesus. He put what we deserved on Christ. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is that cornerstone. This is Jesus, the living stone, coming and saying, those who are far or those who are near can be brought near and, and, and made near by the, by the peace that's offered on the cross. And through that faith, it goes on in verse 19, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers to God, right? Foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Again, when, when Peter is writing this, he's, he's saying, listen, you, you are a living stone and you're being put together, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house and being built to be a holy priesthood to offer your sacrifices acceptable to God. He's saying that we are going to become the living, breathing body of Christ. He's talking about the church being built here. And, and Paul goes on in Ephesians to say this too, that we're, we're built on this foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. And then it says, in him, in Christ, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. As God's people come together, as, as there's unity shared in Christ followers. It says, in him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. God dwells within believers, and God, God's Spirit works and moves within the body of Christ as they unite together as the living stone, the church. But it's only because Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, is actually where life is found, and we found life in Him. Number two, Christ, the cornerstone, is rejected or He's believed. He's rejected or He's believed. And we see this passage continue in 1 Peter 2, 7-8. through 8. He says, so honor will come to those who believe. This honor of being part of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the church. Honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, and he quotes prophecy here again, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. Interesting to see how, how this this stone that's there is, is this cornerstone, the stone to build our lives on. It's a living stone. It's a, it's a stone to find life in. But, but that stone is sitting out there and people who come to it blindly and, and, and don't want anything to do with Jesus, they just stumble over it all the more. We see this in Isaiah chapter 28. I'll read 14 through 18. Isaiah writes, therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, those who trip and fall right over the, and stumble over the, over the cornerstone who rule this people in Jerusalem. For you said, we have made a covenant with death, and we have made an agreement with Sheol. When, uh, when the overflowing, overwhelming catastrophe passes through, it will not touch us. And because we have made falsehood our refuge and hidden behind treachery. So they're saying, listen, we've made a deal with the devil. We're good to go here. No big deal. We're, we're fine. But here's the response. Therefore, the Lord God said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, the one who believes will be unshakable. So they were afraid of other nations and making deals with the devil they shouldn't have been making. And God all the while is saying, I've got a cornerstone for you. I've got a sure footing. I've got a foundation that will be untouchable. It's my Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. He goes on. He says, and I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the mason's level. Hail will sweep away the false refuge and water will flood your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be dissolved. Your Agreement with Sheol will not last. When the overwhelming catastrophe passes through, you will be trampled. 
God says, you, you thought you made a deal. You thought you could hide. You thought you could run away. You thought you could avoid the stone forever. But all the while, you're just tripping over it. And it's right there for the taking. It's right there for believing. It was interesting how he talked about this, this stone. I want us to understand, for those who do believe, when we trust in Christ as Savior, when we put our lives in His hands, when in, in, in He's the living stone and He be, makes us a living stone through faith in Christ, th- there's something to be said about His example. See, the cornerstone was to be set, and from the cornerstone, all of the other parts of the building, all of the other stones on the building were to be placed. It was the measuring line. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm building a garage at my house, and, and it's very similar. We, you set up batter boards outside these foundation walls, and, and then you set up string lines, and you've measured everything precisely, and the string line goes from one corner to the other, and then you pull it on the, other, uh, on the back line, and you, you pull a hypotenuse for square. And once you find that square, those lines are set, and everything you do should be built off of those lines. If you decide to wander, your foundation is going to wander as well, and it won't structurally necessarily be sound. The desire is to get everything perfectly straight and measured off of those batter boards. The same is true for you and I. If we come to faith in Christ, when we're part of his, his family, a people for his own possession, we are, we are not out there to do our own thing. We're not out there to wander our own way and to look for other examples. He sets the standard, and everything is measured off of him as the cornerstone. We see the leaders of the day as Jesus is talking to them. Uh, they thought they had it all together. They thought they could be the example. They were the gold standard. And Jesus continually fought with them about this. And so he says this in Matthew 21. He's, he's uh, teaching them a parable, verses 33 and following. He says, listen to another parable. And listen, they, they really did listen. They wanted to hear and, and pretend that they knew what he was talking about. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and, and dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. He leased it to a tenant farmer, uh, and, and he went away. And when the time had come to harvest the fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect the fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent the other servants, and uh, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants' farmers saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will these farmers do? So Jesus asked that question. So he's told this story, and, and it's very, very much like, if you look at the story, the picture there is of the father and of, of us and of, of the son. And what did they do? Well, they saw this story as an insult. When the owner comes, he, he, should, he should get rid of these guys. He should kill them. And they answered that. He said, the owner comes, he will completely destroy those terrible men. They even call them terrible men, these Pharisees did. And, and, and then he'll lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at his harvest. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? So now he's going to get it personal. He's going to make this personal and say, listen, don't you see yourself in the story? The wicked servants who are leasing, the farmers who are leasing the, the land are, are the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And when God's servants, God's people who have faith in him come like prophets, they kill him. Or when the sun comes, they kill him. He said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected had become, has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done. 
and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and, uh, but on whoever it falls, it will shatter him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard this, they knew that he was speaking about them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. Listen, they, they knew they were wrong. And see, what they wanted, they wanted their own way. They wanted their own glory. They wanted all the fruit for themselves. And what they eventually ended up doing is trying to take and steal that fruit from the rightful heir who is Jesus Christ. And how did they do that? Well, they would eventually succeed in their mission to arrest him and crucify him. They thought they would be done away with him, but they have not been. He is still the stone, the cornerstone that will be tripped over. You see, for you and I, that uh, Jesus is the cornerstone. And he can either be rejected or he can be believed. I would say believe. Trust in him. Lean on him. Number three, Christ the cornerstone gives us a new identity. He gives us a new identity. In 1 Peter, we go on in this passage, uh, verses 9 through 10. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We see that we would be, be honored and esteemed if we would believe But if we don't, if we reject him, we're destined for judgment. But Peter makes this this turn. This is where that pivot happens in this passage. He says, but you, but you. And and Peter is talking to the church, the beloved church, the ones he loves and he knows and he's wanting to remind them. He says, you, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He says this in Exodus as well. Well, we see see in Exodus as well where God describes this this people to Moses. Moses goes up to the mountain of God and and, uh, the Lord called him from the the mountain. Uh, This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Or God's choosing his people for his own possession. Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant... You will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you're to say to the Israelites. Such an amazing, amazing thing to see here. What does this mean? Well, a chosen race. It's, it's that God, God is revealing uh, that he is the one who is calling people and stirring people and drawing people. And, and, and God, it's God's loving initiative that brings people from far away, near, through faith in Jesus Christ, allowing them to be his people, allowing him to, them to be his bride and his church. They are a treasured possession. You see, something very ordinary has been chosen and valued and treasured by something very extraordinary. God is choosing a people. So it's a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This, a royal means that we are, we are citizens of a king, that we serve a king, and, and it's not just... Uh, a minor king. This is the king of kings. He is the priest of all priests, and we are now priest in line of him, the, the high priest. So what does a priest do? Well, he, he mediates on behalf. He goes to God on behalf of people, and he goes to people on behalf of God. 
That, that's our role as, as priests, the kingdom of priests. We're to share the glories of God with people and draw them into relationship with Him. We're a holy nation or a, a people for His own possession. A holy nation indicates this, this being set apart and, and, and set aside, uniquely different. And God and His holiness is absolutely unlike anything in this world. And He's calling other people like you and I, a holy nation. He's, he's calling us to be unlike anything in this world and like Him, to be set apart and uniquely different. And a people for His own possession. This is a peculiar people, a people for, that are His, that, that He values, that He esteems, that He possesses. These are His. And, and when we look at those people, they would show that they are His. That's what He is saying here. It says that you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the mark of someone who is a chosen one of God. See, when we're strangers and exiles, we, we don't look like the world. We proclaim the excellencies and the, and the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Then he goes on in verse 10. He says, once you were not a people. That's weird. And it says, once you had not received mercy. Well, I, when Peter says this, I... I I have to believe that his hearers, the readers, are, are hearing this uh, and understanding this is, this is similar to Hosea, the prophet Hosea, which we read in our Bible reading plan this past week. But when you look at this, uh, the book of Hosea, chapter 1, you see Hosea called, he's a prophet of God, he's called to go take a wife who is a prostitute, right, a lady of the night, and, and to show God's undying, faithful love for, for you and I, that, that we would be like that prostitute who profane his name and, and live in promiscuity. But God pursues us and, and, and redeems us. So Hosea does with Gomer, the prostitute. But he also says, go, go have children. And, and I, want, I want to just read a few passages out of Hosea chapter 1. Because if you think about our new identity that we have in Christ, a, rose, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, we have to go back and to see what we once were. Before we know what we now are, we have to see what we once were. So when, when in Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, the Lord spoke to Hosea. He said, uh, go marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity. For the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity and abandoning the Lord. So he's saying that some, judgment's coming here. So he went and married Gomer, daughter of uh, Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. For in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Saying judgment's coming. Okay, so this is interesting how these names work. Now, let's go on, the next two kids. She conceived again in verse 6 and gave birth to a daughter and said, Name her uh, Lo-Rahoma, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. You get that? I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. And after Gomer had weaned her, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And then the Lord said, uh, name him Lo Am I. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. God is causing judgment to be on the house of Israel. So what does he say? That this, this chosen nation, this, these people who are supposed to be for his own possession, are being cut off. I mean, because of your promiscuity, because of your idolatry, because of your blatant acts of, of, of disobedience and rebellion, I will not have mercy on you and I will not be your God. Well, this goes against what we see here in Peter now, doesn't it? That's why this new identity is so important. When Israel feels like, man, has God forsaken us? Has God left us? Has God abandoned his, his people? Has God taken his hand of mercy and compassion 
off of us, as He's no longer our God, we're reminded that once you were not a people, yes, that's true, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. There's a renewal happening here, a revival happening, a restoration happening. And once you had not received compassion or mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, this is a new identity that we're, we're getting here. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Finally, we look at Christ as the cornerstone. And number four, Christ the cornerstone makes his mercy and excellence our mission. He makes his mercy and excellence our mission. Remember, again, this is the pivot point here. We, we pivot on Christ, the cornerstone, and we pivot towards what we're to do next, how we're to behave, how we're to act, how we're to live our lives as people who live in a world that's not our home. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's a mission that you and I are to have. When we come to faith in Christ, when he, when he treasures us and values the unvaluable because he is merciful and gracious and good and loving and his covenant faithful love is steadfast for us, we should embrace that and see that and it should change us. It should drive us to our knees, first of all, and drive us to, to show and tell everybody all about the mercy of God, the grace of God, the excellence of God, his excellence as far as his morality and his his standards. He is, the, again, the measuring line. He's that cornerstone that everything is measured off of. And we go to them telling them how excellent he is and how willing he is to forgive sin through faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect atonement. So we see that, that he goes on, Peter does in verse 11. He says, dear friends, dear friends. And, and this, this dear friends, it's more than that. It's, it's beloved. It's my, my, my deeply cherished church. He says, I urge you. I urge you as strangers and exiles. Well, this is probably important. What comes next is probably important. <coughs> I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. It's interesting how many people will compromise their standards and their morals and their positions because people make them squirm. Because people look at them and say, oh, that's not true, that's not right, you shouldn't have anything to do uh, with that stance or that standard. So the church, people that claim Christ, start to back off from those claims and say, oh, maybe I, I was wrong, maybe I'll change what I, what I say. God doesn't change. Again, he's the cornerstone, he's the, the measuring line. That's where we get our standard from. So Peter here is urging us as strangers and exiles to be strangers and exiles. Strangers and exiles are those who, who don't, don't go into sinful uh, desires, who abstain from sinful desires. The world says go otherwise, but strangers and exiles is what we are, and we aren't part of the world. And, and it's, it, here's what's neat about this. As we, as we are faithful to God, first of all, we have a clear conscience, and a, we, we, we don't feel the shame and guilt of going into sin. But as we are faithful to God, that is proclaiming His excellencies. That's proclaiming his mercy. And, and although the world may ridicule and persecute and come against us, one day they're going to they're gonna remember back and say, oh yeah, I remember 
they said this, they did this, and, and when God visits, they're going to be like, yeah, th- these people were faithful, and I, and I understand what God is like because of these people. It's interesting that uh, it, the Salvation Army is like this for many. Uh, I, I read some, some stories actually about the Salvation Army this week, and, and one of the, the things that I saw was that there was a place where the Salvation Army went in to minister to kind of the untouchables, the unreachables, people who didn't want uh, to, to have Jesus, but they also didn't want, or, or people didn't want to talk to them. Well, the Salvation Army, these women in the Salvation Army would go and reach out to these people, these, these untouchables. And, and when, when they uh, saw that they had love and compassion for them, it touched their heart. Well, they may not have changed their ways, they may not have repented of their sin, but they understood that this is God's compassion on them. And you think about the Salvation Army, they were ridiculed because of this. Oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be with unclean people, you shouldn't be doing this. They were ridiculed for this. But remember, the Salvation Army is also people who respond in disaster, for, to, to relief, for relief and disaster. And, and who is it that we call? When there's a natural disaster that happens, these people that we ridiculed at one point are now the people that we call. You see, people will glorify God on the day he visits because of our actions and our obedience. Although they may ridicule us now, one day they will not ridicule us. Here's what Peter is saying, though. You and I, as believers, as strangers and exiles, we must stop looking like the world. We have to stop looking like the world. Peter does not want believers to forget that they are strangers and exiles and that their citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. Here he's stressing that a person's citizenship is where they learn customs and morality, what is right and wrong. So where is your citizenship? Are you planning yourself here in this world? Because if you are, you are learning those customs and those habits and those morals, and that's what you're embracing. Or are you deciding and desiring to be a stranger in exile to the world and live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? The attitudes and behavior of fallen people should never become the standard of right and wrong in the church. We do not get our marching orders from what is acceptable or what is expected in our culture. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 12. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, right, there's his, his mercy is excellence, right? In view of his mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. What is true worship? It's offering ourselves to him, to be pleasing to him, not to the world. Paul goes on, do not be conformed to this age or the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to discern what is God's good and pleasing and perfect will. Again, today's passage is this turning or pivoting point in 1 Peter. Peter is establishing the foundation uh, that the church is built on and, and that the church itself is this living stone, this living, breathing body of Christ. And we are to hunger for the word of God and, and we're to abstain from the temptations of the world and, the, and set aside the, the temptations of the, of the flesh and the ungodly attitudes in the world around us of sin. And then that's how we show and that's the way we tell, right? We show through the way we conduct ourselves as strangers and exiles and we tell by proclaiming God's faithful love and excellent mercy to an unbelieving world so that they might repent and believe. Listen, if you and I do not look different than the world, the world has no draw to come to Christ. It's got to look different. And, and the more we live in this world and the society, we are seeing this, this bigger separation, this, this wider gap, this chasm 
between what God wants and what the world wants. We need to choose to be strangers and exiles and live in a world that is not our home. As we go forward uh, in the text now, we're going to continue next week and the weeks to come seeing the behavior of God's people, how we actually should live as strangers and exiles. I want to finish with the last verse here, Isaiah 43, 21. God says this, The people I formed for myself will declare my praise. The people I formed for myself will declare my praise. I think for you and I, we should ask ourselves the question, are we doing that? Are we actually a people that God has called out? Have we, have we trusted him in faith? And then if we have, are we proclaiming the praises or the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Does the world even know that there's a difference? I hope so. We ought to live as strangers and exiles in this world. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you've given us Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. And through faith in Christ, we too become a living stone. God, that you're building us up as the body of Christ, the church. God, not just for our benefit, but God, to show and reveal your glory, to reveal your mercy, your excellencies, God, to the world around us, that we would live as strangers and exiles, showing all the while that that through faith in Christ, we can have life. God, help us to be that beacon of hope, shining Christ to a world who desperately needs forgiveness, who desperately needs joy, who desperately needs hope. Help us to be strangers and exiles and live differently. Live like this world is not our home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.